In Genesis chapter 8, we come to the end of the rain, the drying of the ground, the sending of the birds, and eventually Noah and his family called to leave the ark after it comes to ground on Mount Ararat. There are a few things I think it's very important for us to notice, to help us understand uh, something that I emphasized already in Genesis chapter 3. You may remember uh, that when we were in Genesis chapter 3, we talked about the curse that God pronounced on Adam and Eve. And my supposition that while Adam and Eve were probably trying to look uh, downcast and uh, sad for their sins so as to maybe mitigate God's uh, punishment on them. I uh, suggested that internally, as they listened to God's pronouncement, they were probably celebrating. Because what's interesting about God's punishment on Adam and Eve is that it is a punishment on the work they had been called to do which meant they're still called to do that work. I emphasize that because I don't want us to think that when Adam and Eve failed, that the original command given to man, the dominion mandate, or even the covenant of works, suddenly disappeared. It suddenly went away. And you see the same thing here in Genesis chapter 8. In fact, you can see uh, in Genesis chapter 8 and in chapter 9, uh, a, a retelling of what happened uh, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in a manner of speaking. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, we're told, for instance, uh, after the waters uh, stopped coming down, after they began to subside, after the, after the boat, or the ark rather, touched ground, uh, we're told that the winds blew to dry up the water. Well, what does that have to do with Genesis 1 and 2? Well, you may remember that, uh, at least in the Greek, the word for wind is the same word that we use for the word spirit. I believe the word is pneuma. And so there's a connection linguistically between the spirit and his work and the wind. You can see the same principle when Jesus says the wind blows where it will. Well, in the creation account, one of the things that we see the Holy Spirit doing very early uh, in Genesis uh, 1, we're told that the earth was formless and void. That is tohu vabohu, formless and void. But the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. What you have there is the Spirit of God taking that which is amorphous, that which is unformed, that which is not ordered, and giving harmony to it. What the Spirit does is it harmonizes complexity. That's one of the reasons why the very first time we read of the Spirit indwelling someone, it's in the context of the Spirit being given to... Uh, the two men charged with creating uh, the elements for the tabernacle during the Exodus. 
These men are gifted with the Spirit so that they can make things of beauty. Beauty is the harmonizing of complexity. And so the Spirit is here taking this mess that came out of the flood and he's giving order and design to it. And it is being remade. The whole of the world has been baptized, if you will, including, by the way, all those who died. And that, I believe, is why the raven is in the account. We remember we're all familiar with uh, Moses sending out uh, the dove and the dove coming back with the uh, sprig from the olive tree. Uh, What we may not remember is that that time when the uh, dove comes back with that sprig, it is actually the second of three trips by the dove and the third of four trips Uh, by two different birds. The very first bird that is sent out by Noah is a raven. But the raven doesn't come back. Well, why was that not compelling evidence that the ground was appearing and it was time to get out? Why was that not compelling evidence when on the fourth trip, The dove is sent out and it doesn't return and that is considered compelling evidence that it's time to get out. Well, to answer the question, I have to remind you of uh, an unpleasant truth about ravens. Ravens are carrion birds. They're carrion birds. That is, they are birds uh, who survive like vultures Uh, like crows, uh, like magpies. Uh, They're birds that survive by eating the carcasses of already dead animals. They're the flying version of the catfish, if you will, of bottom-feeding, scum-sucking fish at the bottom of the sea. So the raven can go and alight on floating dead bodies in the water and live on those floating dead bodies on the water and never come back. When the first time the dove is sent out, the dove comes back empty-handed. The second time the dove is sent out, a week later, comes back this time with that uh, olive branch symbolizing, one, God's affirmation of his uh, peace on the survivors, but two, uh, symbol or not necessarily symbolizing, but demonstrating uh, that there is surviving or not surviving, but living plant life, uh, you know, reachable and available. And then when that fourth trip happens, uh, the dove is able to live on land. And then it's time for Adam and Eve to come out uh, from the ark. Now, I'd like us to spend our remaining time considering the very end of this chapter. I want you to see, as I've been emphasizing, that this is a new beginning, a new Eden, a new world. Uh, that which was displeasing to God was, was wiped out and gone. And Adam and Eve are going to have, in chapter 9, when we get there next time, they're going to have 
the original dominion mandate reiterated to them. But just as the dominion mandate is given to Adam and Eve, after God has already poured out his kindness on them in putting them in paradise and giving them liberty to eat of any of the fruit of the trees in the garden except for one, in the same way, God, at the end of chapter 8, before reiterating the call of the dominion mandate, he blesses Adam and Eve. Excuse me, he he demonstrates his grace to Noah and his family. He shows his kindness to them and makes his commitment to them. Let's take a look uh, at this text that I'm talking about. I'll be reading from the ESV, uh, not because that's my favorite, but because that's what I have close by. Uh, Beginning here in Genesis 8, verse 20, we read, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Now, friends, I have emphasized how while I believe that Genesis 1 and 2 tells the truth about what actually happened and does, in fact, uh, refute the foolishness of Darwinism, I've emphasized the truth that that's probably not the principal motive that Moses had in writing it down, that Moses was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Uh, telling the children of Israel on their way to the promised land far more significant things than uh, it happened in six days, far more significant things than it didn't happen by evolution. Well, the same thing is true here, but more so. Here's what I mean. I believe better than Genesis 1 and 2 in uh, refuting the secular uh, humanistic, positivistic mindset is this text that I have just read to you. You see, friends, the scientific method is built on the premise that the future will be like the past. It assumes a... Uh, what's the word for it, a a uniformitarianism, uh, that the world doesn't change in radical ways. And it's proof that it doesn't do so is looking back over history and seeing that it doesn't do so. You have had for thousands of years, every single day, the sun comes up. That's why Annie was so confident. The sun will come up tomorrow. But here's a little technical philosophy that I want you to get. A million examples of the future reflecting the past 
is no evidence of the future reflecting the past, unless there is a given premise that the future will reflect the past. I'll say it again slowly. A million examples of the future looking like the past is no proof that the future will look like the past unless there is an assumed premise that the future will look like the past. The idea, no matter how many examples that you may have, that the future will be like the past, that idea is absolutely and utterly gratuitous without Genesis 8. The reason we have the level of uniformitarianism that we have, and isn't it interesting that that promise is not given to us until after the worldwide flood, but the reason we have uniform, uniform uh, uh, non-catastrophic uh, progress uh, in space and time is precisely because God made this promise here. Every time we realize what's the best time for us to plant our crops based on lunar cycles, based on rainfall, based on all of the predictive power that we seek to grab a hold of is built on in the same way that every bit of uh, computer programming is built on a zero and a one if you go back far enough. In the same way, every bit of predictive power is built on eventually coming back to the end here, beginning in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 8. The other day I was talking with a friend uh, and he uh, you know, pleased me and impressed me when in casual conversation he cited C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. He was complaining about uh, the lack of courage in our pulpits and our need for uh, men with chests. And that led to a conversation about the abolition of man. And in that conversation, I said, you know, the abolition of man is one of my top 10 favorite books of all time. And every time I talk about it, I, I mention that. And I also mention how incredibly impressive that is, given the fact that one third of the book is atrocious. It's a tiny little book, but the first two thirds are so good that the atrociousness, atrociousness of the last third doesn't knock it out of the top 10 books ever in my judgment. Well, what's the last third? The last third is Lewis's exposition of what uh, the Chinese call the Tao, which means the way. And uh, Lewis presents the Tao, by the way, spelled T-A-O. He presents the Tao as a kind of law, a kind of order that transcends God. It is a law, according to Lewis, above God, to which God is uh, in submission. You can see something of that concept in the uh, line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, 
uh, when Aslan is resurrected and he cites what he calls the deep magic, that when someone lays down their life, death can't hold them. That's the deep magic. That's his appeal to the Tao. Well, friends, there is no Tao. There is natural law, but the natural law that we have is a law that flows out of God's nature. It's not above God, such that he is submissive to it. It's not below God, such that he can be capricious, but rather it is who God is. God is literally a law unto himself, which means that this continuity, this uniformitarianism that we have, that we enjoy, is not a fixed, innate necessary part of this world but it is an act of God's grace and God's kindness and of God's sovereign will we live in an ordered universe we live in a world where we are able to predict not perfectly but in the exercise of dominion we are able to uh, have some capacity to uh, predict the weather. I have been patiently waiting for the snow to come. I had a pretty good idea in August it wasn't going to come. I had a little less certainty, but a still high degree of certainty in September. It wasn't going to come. By the time October came, I had just a smidgen of hope. Now I'm in November and I'm just counting the days until it comes. I know what to expect. I don't know whether it's going to be uh, 65 today or whether it's going to be 25 today. But I do know it's probably not going to be 105 and it's probably not going to be 15 below zero. All of this is because of this promise and something else I want us to hold on to. We'll, we'll see more of this, of course, when we come to Genesis uh, chapter 9, when we uh, hear God speak about the rainbow. But what I want you to remember is that none of God's covenants ever go away. Everything that God promises comes to pass and abides. It is true of this promise here at the end of Genesis 8. God has ordered his universe. Doesn't mean that it's outside of his control. It doesn't mean that he's wound it up and walked away. What it does mean is that he has made it knowable, understandable, coherent, rational, such that we can reflect his glory in learning about the created order. I don't remember whether it was Newton or whether it was Adam Smith, uh, two great committed Christians who were scientists in their own right, who said that their goal, their desire, Adam Smith in the realm of economics, Newton in the realm of physics, their goal was to think God's thoughts after him. We're able to do this again because God has promised. We can count on it. And that goes back to God's grace, God's kindness, God's covenant, God's deliverance of our parents, Noah, his children, his wife, and his son's daughters. 
all who were our parents, from whom we have descended. It is God's world, and because God is a God of order, and because he has promised, we live in a world of order.